Welcome to the second season of the Fireside Podcast, presented by the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. I'm Chase Maxwell. Twenty-two years ago, the Friends began a storytelling series for adults. What could be better than sitting by the fire, sipping a warm cup of coffee or cider, while listening to some of the best writers Minnesota has to offer? Over the years, the Fireside series has featured a great range of authors, from Kate DiCamillo to Jack Weatherford, Carol Bly to Marlon James, making the winter just that much more bearable. The 2016 season continues this great legacy of presenting Minnesota's best authors reading by the fire. After a great response last year, we've decided to continue podcasting the series in its entirety. Ojibwe historian and linguist Anton Troyer joins the Fireside series to discuss his latest work, Warrior Nation, a history of the Red Lake Ojibwe, a fascinating history which offers not only a chronicle of the Red Lake Nation, but also a compelling perspective on a difficult piece of U.S. history. The Red Lake Nation has unique and deeply important history. Unlike every other reservation in Minnesota, Red Lake holds its land in common and, consequently, the tribe retains its entire reservation land base. The people of Red Lake developed the first modern indigenous democratic governance system in the United States, decades before any other tribe, but they also maintain their system of hereditary chiefs. The reservation is also home to the highest number of Ojibwe-speaking people in the state. Warrior Nation covers four centuries of the Red Lake Nation's forceful and assertive tenure on its land. Troyer conducted oral histories with elders across the Red Lake Reservation, learning the stories carried by the people. And the Red Lake Band has, for the first time, made available its archival collections, including the personal papers of Peter Graves the brilliant political strategist and tribal leader of the first half of the 20th century, which tell a startling story about the negotiations over reservation boundaries. Troyer, professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, is the author of Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask, and 12 other books on Ojibwe history and language. Warrior Nation is currently a finalist for the 28th Annual Minnesota Book Awards and a nominee for the Hognander Minnesota History Award. Thank you. Miigwech. English? They asked me to come and talk at you guys for a few hours. They didn't say anything about using a foreign language like English. <laughs> English is the foreign language, you know. We're going to try to keep it short, even though there's a lot to say. And there's no way to truly honor a book this big and a story this really impressive. Not my work, but 
the story itself that I'm trying to do some justice to in the time that we have. But I'll try to give you some idea of what the book's about and uh, some of the challenges we ran into. Take your questions and uh, shamelessly sell my wares afterwards and visit with anyone who wants to stay longer. So uh, I'm really honored to be here today. I, I introduced myself in Ojibwe first because people smarter, older, and wiser than me say that's what we do. And in spite of 500 pretty rough years, it's kind of amazing that Native people are still here and still have living languages and vibrant cultures and sovereign nations. It's uh, really a testament to resilience and fortitude, which are a big part of this story. I think a lot of times when we look at Native history, we've been programmed a little bit in this country because we've heard stories about Native people from before 1900 only, and they're stories of loss. Right? And that kind of leaves the impression, unless you have spent a lot of time with Native people, that it's the last of the blank, and fill in the blank with whatever tribe we happen to be talking about. Or that that's all there is to the story. It's, it has to be tragedy. And of course, with all the wonderful things that have happened too, that's not to discount the problems that are out there, but there is much more to that story. So as I embarked on this journey, trying to research the history of Red Lake, I ran into all kinds of things that I was not expecting. Uh, I've been working with Ojibwe language and native history. I've been spending time at Red Lake for a long, long time. My family's from Leech Lake, the little village of Bina, if you ever know where that is. If you're driving across Highway 2, don't blink, you might miss it. But. Uh, uh, you know, so I've, I've been familiar with Ojibwe country and I've spent lots of time in Red Lake, mainly going to ceremonies and, uh, and things like that. And I thought I had my head wrapped around this story a little bit when I started, but I was so wrong. There was so much there. Um, to give you an idea, I guess even about the project itself. I didn't start off on this journey saying, I want to write a history about Red Lake. I was actually asked by the Red Lake Nation to get involved in doing some work on their history. And I wondered why me? Uh, one of my uh, great-grandparents came from Red Lake, but I'm not an enrolled member there. Um, and there are people from Red Lake who are very smart and have written books, and I thought they'd make great candidates. But I think there were a couple things that I brought to the table in addition to my long relationships with many people in Red Lake. One of them is I've done a lot of work with oral history. Uh, I've done a lot of work with archival history too. And one of the things I believe this book succeeds in showing historians is a different way to approach history. How many times has someone written a book on Native history and hardly spent any time in the Native community, or talked to Native people, or engaged them in their language. I wouldn't dream of writing a book on German history without going to Germany, you know? Or doing research in the archives in the German language, and probably French and English too, since they interacted with Germany so much. But there's been a lot of work written about Native people that really hasn't accessed Native voices. Even the archival history is what did the army chaplain write about the natives. And so it's really hard to get at native perspectives. The archival stuff 
is vitally important, and there is a lot there. And it's scattered in weird places. So a lot of the uh, US government documents you know, in the National Archives are in Kansas City for this area. There's stuff that missionaries had gathered that's sitting at Oberlin College. And over the years, the Red Lake Nation has been keeping and copying and researching and conducting oral histories. And they have an archive that, on the one hand, probably make Russ Menard scream because they're handwritten letters from Walter Mondale to the tribal chairman just sitting in the open with dust on top of them. <laughs> There's uh, you know, wax embossed allotment papers just sitting there. And you walk in the door and it kind of looks a bit like shambles. But as I started to dig, oh my word, the stuff that was there. So much material. That was the primary source for most of the stuff we worked on in the book. And of course, we exhausted the archives everywhere else we could find them too. This was uh, a tough piece to research on a thousand different points. It's really the first book on Red Lake. It's kind of like if someone wanted to do an insider's history of the Amish, it'd be challenging. And Red Lake has had a long history of saying, hey, we're a sovereign nation. Buzz off. We know there was a tragedy here. There was a shooting in 2005. None of your business. We'll tell you what you need to know. So doing research there was tough that way. Also, every single person who popped up in the book has a living family member today, and often hundreds of them, and they're all looking. <laughs> and they all really care about what has to be said. There is a lot in this story that is good. There's stuff that is bad. There's stuff that is ugly. Nobody wants their family's history aired in public. You know, their laundry aired out in public. So people were concerned. And it was political, too. We went through, in the process of writing this, two different tribal administrations. And uh, I feel like, on the one hand, I was outsider enough not to hold up one family's narrative over any others, but insider enough to let Red Lakers tell their own story. And that was certainly the goal. There were a lot of things I found really uh, amazing things that contradict our prevailing assumptions on, on many different aspects of native leadership. What I ended up doing was picking seven different prominent tribal leaders, each from a different point in time. There are men, there are women, and using each as a window into how the nature of the tribal government and culture and place changed. And it has evolved significantly over time. Cultural change is part of the human experience. I've never really met an elder from any culture who did not shake his or her head and go, kids these days. <laughs> that is a tension that is part of the human experience. For native people, we get to change over time too. Right? You don't have to worship at Stonehenge to be an authentic Englishman, even though that's part of your story. Native people get to change, too. And sometimes both native and non-native people forget to give us permission to change and evolve. At the same time, cultural continuity is also part of this story. Even today at Red Lake, if you go to a Red Lake tribal government meeting, they have democratically elected tribal representatives and a long line of hereditary chiefs 
and they are both part of the same tribal government. And those chiefs are the direct descendants of all of the major characters in this book. So yeah, they're pretty curious about what I was going to find and how I was going to say it. So one of the pieces I, I had to wrestle with is this dynamic that I think is oftentimes misunderstood. But for Ojibwe people, there was on the one hand a really deep belief that anybody and everybody is spiritually empowered to be their own cultural agent. So that if someone has a dream, they're going to do their ceremony like this, that's what they do. And if their neighbor has a dream that they're going to do it like that, well, that's what they do. It can be very confusing for outsiders today when somebody wants to know, what do uh, Red Lakers do? That kind of depends on what family you're talking to. It's that diverse and that empowered. Any kid could be the most important cultural carrier we have. And through fasting and things like that, anyone could be empowered. Interestingly, at the same time that people were very, very tolerant of cultural difference, they were extremely intolerant of being told what to do. So, as soon as somebody tried to exercise command or control, or even generated significant influence, someone else would be moving down the river and starting a new village with their own chief. And that kind of was the Ojibwe way. And we were expanding. And even after contact, the Ojibwe territory expanded 20-fold at the expense of other tribes. And as long as people were expanding, that dynamic was unchallenged. When you hit the treaty period, and you get land loss, and all of a sudden you got chiefs from 20 different villages in the same place, people had to accommodate one another. And boy, was that hard. Right? It's hard in any culture, but when your culture says no one can tell you what to do, you are your own spiritual and political agent, it was bumping right up against the culture. Even today, when you hear snippets about rancor and problems with tribal governments, that is one of the dynamics that's actually an ancient one that we're still wrestling with, in addition to internalized and lateral oppression, the crabs in the bucket kind of stuff. So that was one of the dynamics. At the same time, in spite of that dynamic, there were people at Red Lake who rose to lead in this place that is so hard to lead, and they led for decades. Anybody who did that was really impressive. They did not just lead because of their position, but because they had more than moxie, some really amazing qualities and attributes and ideas, and did it through some of the most troubling periods of history anyone could ever imagine. The nature of tribal leadership is very different than the nature of leadership in many other cultures. There's a place at Red Lake. It's on Lower Red Lake. It is the easternmost part of the lake, and it's the most windward part. So the winds just blow across the lake all winter long. Sometimes you'll get snowdrifts 20 feet high, colos off the road, uh, need heavy equipment, and it blows the smaller fish into the shallows. There's eagles all over the place in there. And the constant wave action has created all of this translucent 
sand. And when the sun hits it, it glows white. You can see it from 12 miles away. And they call it Chiwasadawangadeg, the white sand dunes. And this is the place where people go fasting. Even today, when they have tribal government functions, they always start with a pipe. They always start with a tobacco. They start with a prayer. And tribal leaders introduce themselves with their native name and their clan and the community that they're from. And that's not just ancient protocol. Those are the sources of empowerment, not just in spiritual matters, but in political matters. Unlike the Western world, where political empowerment might come, you know, like George Washington making a name for himself in war, or by being elected to a big governmental body, or inheriting a, being a king, none of that mattered in Ojibwe country. The source of empowerment was the white sand dunes. So it was different. And you have this cultural continuity and change, and it played out in many different ways. If you look at the flag for the Red Lake Nation, you'll see seven clans on there. If you look at the archival information, there's not a lot on Ojibwe clans, but there is some. And what's out there says that there were two chieftainship clans. There was the Loon clan, and there was the Crane clan. And the Loon clan had the pretty voice, the diplomat. And usually in political functions, the diplomats would start speaking first. And then finally, the crane would come in, the one with the loud, strong voice, and say, this is how it is. And it's really interesting to see that that dynamic really played out. But if you look at the flag in Red Lake, they did a census of their chiefs. And guess what? There's no loon, there's no crane anywhere among the chiefs at Red Lake. All of their chiefs are from the Bear Clan, or the Martin Clan, or some of these other ones. And there's no way that anything in the archives could tell you anything about that, but lots of people at Red Lake had something to say. And what they said was this. We were, for a time, at war with the Dakota. And the people who came to Red Lake were warriors. And we had to pick chiefs from who was here. So we picked Warriors, but once established, those positions were hereditary. Well, that made a lot of sense. Thank God I talked to some Indians instead of just looking at the archives. And then when you look at the flag, you see all kinds of other things. There's a clan there that you'll find at Red Lake, Roseau River, Turtle Mountain. So it's basically Red Lake and points westward. But you won't find it elsewhere in Ojibwe country. It's the Kingfisher clan. And so I found this. At one point, after the Ojibwe had established themselves at Red Lake, there was a Dakota War Party that came up there. And it was not a successful war party. They kind of got run out of there. But they had a young teenage boy with them. And he couldn't escape and run away from grown men. One of the warriors came, the Ojibwe warriors. He would have been fair game in war. But he said, stop. Don't kill him. That's my son. So he took him as a captive and raised him as his own son, gave him an Ojibwe name, Wabi Benes. And when he did, there was a choice in Ojibwe culture. You could, through adoption, give someone your clan or let them keep their own. And this boy happened to be old enough where the Dakota had a clan system too. And it transferred into the Ojibwe community, the Kingfisher clan. He grew up, he got married, he had babies. 
And that clan is represented amongst elected tribal chairmen at Red Lake, hereditary chiefs, and spiritual leaders, a number of which are profiled in the book. That was cultural change, but that was also cultural continuity. There are many, many stories to tell, and I'll probably only get to get to a couple of them tonight. But I think widely misunderstood is that early Ojibwe-Dakota conflict. I put an appendix in the back, which is the story of when the Dakota ruled the lakes and how that initial phase of conflict developed. It's a widely misunderstood story. For hundreds of years, the Ojibwe and Dakota were actually friends. And there was a complicated political scenario that got them at one another. So I'm going to save that one. Unless you want me to go there with your questions, I'm happy to. And talk about when the Ojibwe first arrived. And when that happened, the Ojibwe and Dakota had then been at war. In Panema, which is in between Upper and Lower Red Lake, there's a point of land out there. And uh, the Ojibwe had first come there. And there were still Dakota people living in villages on the south shore of the lake. And they'd look, and you could see, you know, 12 miles across the lake. And they're looking at each other's fires all winter long. There is no doubt that there was going to be a conflict. Fanny Johns, who's one of the elders from Red Lake who passed away now, she said uh, there were medicine men, Ojibwe medicine men in Panema. And every time the Dakota scouts would come, they would do a ceremony. And it created a mirage where it looked like there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Ojibwe. And some of the Dakota families said, it's not worth spilling the blood. And they moved west. But some stayed. And eventually, they would come and challenge the Ojibwe for ownership of the lakes. It was a brutal battle. It started out at a place we now call Battle River. The Dakota came. There were hundreds of them. They caught an Ojibwe trapper and killed him. Another one ran for help. And Ojibwe warriors came out of Panema, and they were paddling in their canoes along the shore of the lake. Some were running through the woods, and they descended on Battle River. It was a brutal battle. Hundreds of people died. The Ojibwe had some significant advantages in warfare. It's not just that they had a long trade relationship with the French and easier access to guns. That did play out in some battles later. But they had faster canoes, birch bark canoes, as opposed to wooden dugout canoes. Eventually, the Dakota were routed, and they tried to escape around the lake. And the Ojibwe pursued them in their canoes, overtook them at the Sandy River outlet, and killed them all. They came back to Battle River, and there were so many dead human beings, Ojibwe and Dakota, that their blood ran into the water into a great big red plume in the lake. Red Lake. It had been called Red Lake before because there were tannins from the tamarack trees that would flow kind of pinkish into the lake. But when that event happened, the Ojibwe said, that's why we call it Red Lake. So even though the name had been there, the meaning behind the name had changed. Rough stuff. Yeah. Sorry, was this supposed to be fireside reading? I was supposed to say the nice stuff. <laughs> but after that, the Ojibwe and Dakota, there was sustained conflict. And some of the moments were pretty brutal indeed. But at the same time, 
that relationship, and this is really interesting, there's some good lessons here for what we should do in the United States of America, but the Ojibwe and Dakota eventually reconciled their relationship with one another. The Dakota even presented a, a peace drum to the Ojibwe, and we still carry those drums, we still sing the songs with the Dakota words in there. We call these drums the Bwanji de Weaganug, and it's a really vibrant part of our culture today. So that cross-cultural exchange, the intentional effort to reconcile those ugly chapters in history have been really profound. And even today, like the Shakopee, Madwakatin, Dakota, have funded skate parks and boys and girls clubs and all kinds of things at Red Lake, and that relationship is deep and strong and powerful in a good way. Most Ojibwe people on the borderland along Dakota country have Dakota blood running through their veins. I do. And I think most people do. And you can see it with some of the clans, the Wolf Clan, the Kingfisher Clan, and you can see it within the heritage that people know about, as well as the cultural exchanges. So there were many things that happened. It was an impossible time. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, things like the doctrine of discovery, you know? But uh, for a long time, European, Europeans were uh, ruled by kings who had the divine right to rule. And after Constantine converts to Catholicism, then the Vatican becomes the arbiter of disputes between those Christian kings, right? And so they say Spain, you can colonize here. France, you can colonize there. England, over there. But those rules only applied to the Christian nations. Indigenous people didn't have a divine right to rule. They only had an aboriginal right of occupancy. So Spain could show up, plant a flag, say, I claim this land in the, in the name of the most Christian king, Don Philippe. And the French come and plant their flag. I claim this land in the name of the most Christian king, Saint Louis, you know. But none of the native people had ceded title to the land. Even when America has its revolution against the English crown, they still took the same concept. We bought the Louisiana Purchase from France, fair exchange. None of the human beings living anywhere in the Louisiana Purchase had ever sold any of their land to anybody. And then Henry Rice comes representing the United States of America at treaties with Red Lake in Minnesota, and he's telling the Red Lakers, you don't own this land. This land is owned by your great white father, and it is only through his extreme generosity that he is willing to give you any sort of money to extinguish your aboriginal right of occupancy. He's using those same terms. Nutty, huh? It didn't matter what strategy natives used, America was coming after the land. Some tribes fought, right? And those stories are probably pretty famous to you. Some tribes hid out. And there were some tribes, like the sheep eaters among the Shoshone, who hid out in the high mountains in Idaho, and they intentionally avoided all contact. In the early 1900s, they were still hiding out and had never sold any land or fought anybody. But the US government said, we already own this land. We extinguished your title when we talked to these other Indians over here. It's time to come to the reservation now. Let's go, right? And there were tribes that tried to accommodate, like the Cherokee. We will modernize, civilize, anglicize our government, 
and we'll do things your way. Heck, the Cherokee even owned black slaves. We will take your culture of slavery and we will make it our own. Still, trail of tears, let's go boys. It didn't matter what natives did. There was no way there was going to be a fair outcome. Red Lake had a really interesting strategic approach when it came to the treaty time. And I think the Ojibwe, you will find, took a bit of a hybrid. They did not engage in a massive military campaign like the Lakota. At the same time, they did draw some hard lines in the sand and they were pretty effective negotiating relative to a lot of other tribes. It is not by accident that Ojibwe people still own land on all of the seven largest lakes in the state of Minnesota. And there were some other things. You know, we didn't cross borders, but there was a border that crossed us. And the fact that there were lots of Ojibwe people in Canada, still are, 125 Ojibwe First Nations in Canada, as well as Ojibwe communities in Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, North Dakota. It's a big group. And especially during the Civil War, if you could imagine, things weren't going well for the Union in the early years. The British were financially supporting the Confederacy. Canada is England. They couldn't be sending their army into Canada without igniting a wider conflict with the British at a really tough time. And sometimes that kept America from using the heavy hand they used on some of the other tribes. And Ojibwe leaders knew what they were doing as they negotiated during those tough times. The U.S.-Dakota War, 1862, probably at least heard of that. It had a profound impact because it was 1863. Alexander Ramsey himself is bringing up a major military delegation to go after land at Red Lake. And right afterwards, subsequent, repeated efforts. There was a chief at Red Lake, his name was Moose Dung. Might sound like an unfortunate name today, but <laughs> in Ojibwe ways, you know, that could be a very powerful medicine. In fact, when we harvest rabbits, we actually cut the stomach lining open and take the insides and dry them out. We use those for medicines. They're around picking medicine all the time. So who knows what the story is behind Moose Dung's name. But he was the one who led Red Lake through that really tough time. And he said, we're not going to fight, but we'll negotiate as hard as we can and tried to make some accommodations. Moose Dung was a warrior, too. He, uh, he led the Ojibwe battle at Thief River Falls, uh, along with another guy named Mijaki Asage, sun shining through. The Dakota had kept, believe it or not, a secret village in the heart of Ojibwe country around Thief River Falls. There were Ojibwe people within 100 miles in all directions. And there were Dakota people living there. They refused to use guns. They hunted with bows and arrows. They built a 15-foot-high earthen berm around their village. They burned dry popple for a smokeless fire. And for 60 years, believe it or not, they were undetected. That's incredible. But eventually, Ojibwe found them. Stormed over the earthen breastworks. There were about 100 people in that village. They killed them all. Uh, Moose Dung had led them and he said, this is my village now. He had a lot of uh, pull in the community there. And he was able to 
hold the warriors back who wanted to fight the United States at the same time that he was able to push for better terms than a lot of other tribes might have gotten in those tough circumstances. There were many other stories too. Through the treaty period, there was another guy whose name was He Who Is Spoken To. And he was a tall man. At that time, before, you know when we homogenized milk in America, everybody grew four inches <laughs> through that generation. Everybody did. So like, you know, the average height was about five, six prior to that. Yeah, kind of crazy. But this guy was six foot four. So he's kind of looking at Henry Rice, you know. <laughs> and uh, tall, lean guy. He, uh, he had tremendous respect amongst his people. He refused to sign the treaty, the first land session treaty Red Lake had ever engaged in. And it's interesting. The Ojibwe didn't function as a nation. There was no Red Lake nation. There were many different villages throughout that entire area. And each was independent and had its own chiefs. And remember, no one was going to claim influence or command over anybody else. Right? Those are fighting words. So how did we get a nation out of all of these scattered villages? And a lot of it had to do with he who is spoken to during that treaty period. Believe it or not, America quit making treaties with Indians in 1871. And then they said, oh crap, those Indians still have a whole bunch of land. What do we do? How do we get it? And they found ways. Executive orders by the President of the United States and acts of Congress. And there was a big one in Minnesota in 1889. And it was called often the Nelson Act, named after Knut Nelson, a Minnesota legislator, Norwegian guy in Ojibwe. He who is spoken to called him Angungus, the chipmunk. <laughs> and it was an interesting play on words. He, uh, he called him that in part because that was one of the words we used for Norwegians because there were a lot of guttural sounds in the language and it just, you know how chipmunks speak from the back of their throat? There you go, Norwegians. But it was also a way to always call Mr. Nelson the most annoying creature in the forest. <laughs> and I'm sure that's how he who is spoken to viewed him. There's a lot in the narrative, the relationship between he who is spoken to and Bishop Whipple, which by the way was a deep and abiding friendship that involved a powerful betrayal. But ultimately, Henry Whipple was pulled into American treaty politics on the side of the United States, of course and was brought out to assess a land session that could be legislated at Red Lake. And he who was spoken to, who had converted to Christianity and become an Episcopalian, felt horribly betrayed by Whipple and had to stand up to his mentor, who he loved. Many years later, when he died, Whipple bought his gravestone, which, by the way, still stands in Red Lake. And whether that was out of the maintained friendship or guilt, it's kind of hard to say. And it's a few years later when they bring out Henry Rice and the Chippewa Commission to effect that land deal. And it was a rough one. Amazingly, he who is spoken to is getting badgered around. Um, and by the way, we found some really stunning documents in the Red Lake archives, which I, we could not find anywhere else. Among them, 
13 people who were present at the Nelson Act negotiations were deposed in the 1930s. And those depositions should be in the National Archives. They are not. They should also be with the lawyers, both for the government and the band, and they are not. But Red Lake's typed transcripts of all those depositions survive in their archives. So that was a huge find. Among the people deposed was Mr. Thomas Borgerding, who was the Catholic missionary at Red Lake. And he was present for all of the negotiations. He also testified to Congress a couple of times and in an independent investigation later. So he's actually like four times deposed, but some of the other folks only in this one set of documents. And in there, Borgerding says this, Henry Rice acted in bad faith. He went there and he was charged by the United States Congress to get signatures for an act of Congress to show that the Indians acquiesced. He had no authority to change anything in that legislation. But the Indians said, we will not agree to anything here. We are not going to take allotments. We are not going to sell our land. And there's no way he could get the signatures. So Rice lied. And he said, OK, we'll get you what you want if you'll just sign. He who was spoken to said, I do not believe you. And I do not trust you. He took out his own map, the chief did. And he drew lines and said, this is our reservation. All of Upper Red Lake, all of Lower Red Lake, no exceptions. And Henry Rice says, I think we can do this. And he says, stand up and promise. He makes him stand facing east, both hands up, and promises both lakes to Red Lake as long as grasses grow and rivers flow. Now turn to the south and do the same thing, and to the west, and to the north. And then he who has spoken to goes chuk, chuk, and signs that document. And then everyone else lines up. It takes two days to do all the signing. Rice grabs all the documents, walks out of there, submits a map to Congress that cuts off a big chunk of Red Lake. It is still cut off from Red Lake today. This is an ongoing open land issue at Red Lake today. Unresolved. There are white folk living up there. They got resorts. To be perfectly honest, not to be too jaded, the white guys already screwed up Mille Lacs. <laughs> they dropped off the zebra mussels and it is devastating the fishery. You can take one walleye there now. You know? And moratoriums. They're all heading up to Red Lake. The fishing is great. It's a ticking time bomb. And in subsequent years, Red Lake developed a fishery, a commercial fishery with sustained harvest, putting traditional lifeways to work with a modern commercial enterprise employing hundreds of Indians, and it still does. But it is endangered by the sport fishing in Upper Red Lake. And that is something that is unresolved, the land issues and the fishing issues. And I'm sure you'll see it play out over the next several years. To me, there's kind of, the US government has no precedent for ever returning land to Indians through a court. All they do is they quantify the issues and cut a check. Red Lake doesn't want a check. They want the land back. 
that will have to involve some sort of political process. Legislation that redraws the boundaries as understood and agreed in 1889. And there'll be some white folk living on the res then, which won't hurt them. 96% of the Leech Lake Reservation is owned and occupied either by the federal government or by white private landowners. They get along just fine. But they would also have to do something like legislate that Red Lake has the right of first refusals on any land sales. So people can bequeath their land to their kids or whatever, the white folk who are living there, because anything else would be a deal killer, right? But if they decide to sell, Red Lake could match whatever purchase prices they get somewhere else and get the right to do that or refuse. And then there should be some money appropriated to slowly buy back the land over a period of generations. And that's probably the most realistic solution, but even that is not a gimme. So that is ongoing and open. Among the things that happened, though, as there were chiefs from all these different communities, villages, coming together and rallying behind he who was spoken to when he saved the lake, it kind of united people in a common polity. And it was the emergence, the beginning emergence of a Red Lake nation. Not just defined by treaty, but defined by their shared political action. Interestingly, in Ojibwe, the village of Redby, which is one of the villages on the Red Lake Reservation, we call Madabimog, which means the landing, and that's where the fisheries is, it's the best landing on the lake. But we also call the part of the village where he who is spoken to lived, Ondatamaning, which means the source. And it is both an acknowledgement of the chiefly political power of he who is spoken to, and a way to say the source of the Red Lake Nation. There were so many people who came after. Interestingly, in spite of all the efforts, Red Lake is a fascinating and diverse place in terms of religion. There's a diversity of faith traditions there. In Lower Red Lake, Red Lake Village, they have actually had nuns there for over 90 years in a row. And about 95% of that village is Catholic. In Redby, where he who is spoken to is, there's a significant enclave of Episcopalians, about 15%. And in Panema, on the north side of the lake, no one has ever been baptized. 100% traditional Ojibwe religious belief in funeral practice. And interestingly, I found a gentleman there who's so dynamic. His name was Noden Wind, and Noden by itself means wind. And all he ever had was actually his Ojibwe name, Nodnus, which means little wind. So sometimes when they're asking him, what's your name, and he's trying to get it into English, he was saying Noden or Noden Wind or Noden Wind Junior, even though he wasn't a junior, because <laughs> he's trying to get at little wind. But anyways, believe it or not, he was born in 1874. He died in 1981, 106. He was the Grand Marshal of the 4th of July Parade in Bemidji on the 200th anniversary of the United States of America, and he had lived through half of America's 200-year history. Wow, yeah, we should all be so lucky. In Panema, some pretty interesting things happened. Every time the missionaries came, it was kind of like when the Mongols tried to invade Japan, and the kamikaze divine wind devoured the fleets. 
right? So the Catholics came. There was no road to Panema. Everybody traveled by canoe. So uh, they actually came across the ice in the wintertime, got run out of there, caught in a snowstorm, <coughs> froze to death. The Episcopalians came. They came by canoe in the summer, paddled over there, got run out of there, started to paddle across, got caught in a windstorm blown all the way over to Redby and said, maybe we should just build our mission here? Okay, and that's where they stayed. Boy, the Presbyterians came. Indians lined up on the beach with hand drums and demanded tribute. They said, forget it, we're out of here. <laughs> Even in the 1920s, they were still trying. Congregationalists came. In 1928, couldn't get any help, but there was finally a road to Panema, so they brought in a building on a truck, dropped it, and said, Wabin Chapel, New Dawn, you know, the first permanent church in Panema, <laughs> up in flames. <laughs> and that's kind of how all the missionary movements went in Panema, up in flames. Even today, it's a very different place if you ever go there. People bury their dead in the front yard. They put spirit houses there. And so everyone's yard's just chock full of spirit houses. Step out the door, you can't mow. You know? But there's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, generation upon generation, older than America. Boy, it makes it hard to sell a family farm and move to California. <laughs> Which is the American way, right? So that connection to place is deep. Noden Wind lived through all of that. And he was a person of exceptional character. He was actually a spiritual leader. He ran the medicine dance. And he ran the medicine dance when the U.S. government was sending Indian agents and the Indian police, and they had a court of Indian offenses, and they were persecuting the medicine dance. There were people in Panema who did hard time just for practicing their religion. Noden Wind wrote letters, eloquent letters, to the United States government saying, how can a nation that was founded on the principles of freedom and has in your own founding documents and your Bill of Rights such powerful language about religious freedom deny the first inhabitants of the land their religious freedom and his petition was signed by 140 leaders from Panema. He was quite a powerful voice. He led the protection of Panema in the war on culture. And amazingly, Panema had stayed out of everything else going on. On the south shore of Red Lake, the leaders at Panema refused to sign a single land session treaty, document, Nelson Act. They boycotted them all. To this day, no one in Panema has ever ceded any land, ever. In spite of that, here came the United States Forest Service to clear-cut Panema Point, cut down all the white pine trees, right? Here came, you know, people to persecute their religion. They had no formal interactions with the U.S. government. They came up there to build a school. Warriors lined up, and this is actually in the um, early 1900s, warriors lined up and said, you're not building an assimilation school here. We'll have to kill the construction workers. You know, and they're like, what? You know? So they bring out like 100 police officers. And they say, we're calling for a troop deployment. 
Noden Wind steps up and he says, all right, we really don't want bloodshed. These are our terms. The chiefs here get to appoint the principal of a new school. There will be no land session. The people from this village are going to own this school. We get to choose the staff. We will be the hiring agency. And this will not be an assimilation school. They got the school. The entire staff was native, including the first principal. And for years, the chiefs were appointing the teachers and so forth. Pretty amazing. Noden Wynn was behind that. And as he saw all these problems, the clear cutting and everything else, he said, you know what? He was talking to the other chiefs. He said, I understand not wanting to be any part of, you know, all the assimilation stuff, the Catholics and the Episcopalians and the government and everything else going on on the South Shore Red Lake, but isolation's not working either. And he was the first leader from Red Lake who hopped into a canoe, paddled across the lake, and joined a chief's delegation from Red Lake. And that was 1909. In nine, excuse me, in 1918, Red Lake formed the first modern representative governance structure for any tribe in the United States. Noden Wind was named as one of the seven hereditary chiefs. Not just of Panema, but of the whole Red Lake Nation. Yeah, he was somebody who had a lot of influence. And then he lived for another 60 years. <laughs> so ultimately, he's the one who kind of put Panema in the Red Lake Nation. But because he was such a profound spiritual leader for so many years, he also kind of put Red Lake Nation in the hearts of people in Panema. So someone else who, again, changed Red Lake. There were others, too. Peter Graves just blew my mind. He was the one who founded Red Lake's first modern representative governance structure. He was so smart. He was actually not even from Red Lake, which is also something that just boggles Red Lakers' minds. He, by the way, has at least 300 immediate direct descendants. When he died, he had 75 great-grandchildren and 57 grandchildren. Huge family, right? But in any event, um, his mother was actually originally from Leech Lake, had moved up to Red Lake and married one of the sons of Moose Dung, one of the other chiefs there. Um, and then her husband died, a couple of her kids died, and there was a, a guy who came down from Canada, white guy. He was actually uh, from Scotland originally. He was escaping from the Louis Rial Rebellion. And uh, came down and they formed a relationship and here came a son. He was given a native name. That's all he had for a long time. Eventually, you know, the father split. He actually had another child with another woman at Red Lake just a year later. Moved off, and he died not too long after that. This woman turned to um, one of the people from the English Warren clan, which is a really, another really fascinating family, William Warren you know, who wrote this a book on the Ojibwe. They're the descendants, literally, of the first boatload of pilgrims to come off the Mayflower and some of the most prominent Ojibwe chiefs from the LaPointe, Madeline Island area. Anyways, turned to her as a mentor and she said, well, let's get your kid baptized and we'll get you started. 
and they gave him the name Peter Graves and gave her the name um, Elizabeth Graves after one of her friends in Boston. The Graves family is a huge Red Lake family. Everybody says, that's Red Lake, but <laughs> it's a pretty interesting story how it got there. Anyways, this boy grew up. He was sent to residential boarding school. He actually went to school out in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, was offered admission to Princeton University on a baseball scholarship at age 17 and declined. He said, no, nah, they just value me as a baseball player. I'm more than that. And he came back home, worked for the Office of Indian Affairs, scrounging around. But he ended up becoming one of the most influential leaders at Red Lake of all time. He was a great speaker, reader, and writer of English and of Ojibwe. And he was right away pulled in to the chief's delegation. Uh, there's some really funny things that happened. Like one time, I don't know if you know, in the Battle of uh, Sugar Point, 1898, that was at Leech Lake. Ojibwe people, you know, had a battle with the United States military. Several people were killed. There's a lot of backstory there. But the warriors at Red Lake, including that guy, Mijaki Asaga, he was still alive. He was an old man, the one who had led the battle against the secret city with Mustang. And he said, let's go over there and let's kick some butt. Get the warriors together. Let's go now. And Peter Graves walked in. He was just 26 years old. And he said, anybody who leaves this reservation is not a Red Laker. You'd be a Leech Laker if you go over there. Go. That old man's looking at him. No one had ever talked to that chief like that. And then Peter Graves says, besides, all the government will do is take away tea and you'll go crazy. Because that old man was a famous tea drinker. <laughs> so he started laughing, patted Peter Graves on the back and said, yeah, he's right. Nobody's going over to Leech Lake to heck with those guys. Weird. After that, he was pulled right in chief's delegations and things like that. And he was just a half-breed who had no blood ties at Red Lake, but he was still a foundational piece of the community there. Over time, he did some of the most impressive things. He, uh, he led Red Lake's interventions in all kinds of legal and political things, um, separated Red Lake's legal and court claims and trust funds from all the other Ojibwe communities in Minnesota who became part of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, uh, created Red Lake's first modern governance system, built Red Lake fisheries, and instituted a practice and policy through the Indian Reorganization Act of repatriating unused and unhomesteaded land parcels that Red Lake had already given up thousands and thousands and thousands of acres between the main reservation and the Northwest Angle. And he did that for decades on end. Incredibly, at one point he served as the judge and he had hundreds and hundreds of cases that came. The courts of Indian offenses had a lot of leeway. People could have trial by the judge or a jury trial and they were offered a choice. And he always offered people a choice and nobody in the contentious communities at Red Lake, nobody said, to heck with you, I want a jury trial. They all said, I want you to be the arbiter of my fate. What an amazing vote of confidence from your own people. And they say nobody's a preacher in his own town. <laughs> Roger Jourdain was another dynamic individual. There's so many, and again, we won't have time to do them all. But uh, Roger Jourdain was born 
and brought around by a guy named Paul H. Bolio. And the Bolio family at Red Lake is a, another huge family. I almost lost my mind researching the genealogy, but I traced the French Boli family all the way back to the Anjou province in France. The, they're actually French loyalists during the Huguenot rebellions and so forth, and their Ojibwe families from, actually from Lac de Flambeau, all the way down. And something interesting happened. A lot of Ojibwe people had intermarried with French people. There are great books like Sylvia Van Kirk's Many Tender Ties, Women in Fur Trade Society. French just sent their men, you know, west, and said, you marry native women. And then they'd take the children from those unions and they'd send the boys to France for a formal education, keep the girls in country and use them as bargaining chips and arranged marriages, and that was the French way. But after a few generations of this, there's all these kind of mixed breeds, you know, that are fluent in French, in English, in Ojibwe, that are Catholic, that are loyal to European trade interests. And as they progress, they don't really see themselves as Ojibwe's so much as something entirely independent. Some are the nucleus of what become the Métis communities along the Red River Valley and so forth. Um, and ultimately, you know, the Métis communities fracture and some maintain their independence in Canada. Others were absorbed into the European population, and some were absorbed into the native population at Red Lake, White Earth, Turtle Mountain, and so forth. Uh, and so the Bolio family was one of these. They were at the center of the fur trade and were usually called in to be interpreters during most of the treaty period at White Earth and other places. Paul H. Bolio's father, Clement Bolio, moved to Red Lake. He married two women at the same time, had a house for each across the road from one another, had a huge family with each, and in spite of his Catholic upbringing, he said, forget about that, I'm a Red Laker now. <laughs> and the loyalties and the identity of the Bolio family shifted and morphed over time to be very indigenous. So Paul H. Bolio the Younger, he was the grandson of the original Paul H. Bolio, he ended up being co-author with Peter Graves of that first constitution for Red Lake. He was also the father-in-law for Roger Jourdain and a mentor for him. Jourdain has so many amazing stories. I would say that Peter Graves got things done actually being a reformer. He worked with the U.S. government. But Roger Jourdain, who really rose to power in the, 18, in the 1950s, he was the opposite. He was a revolutionary. He said the Bureau of Indian Affairs, that's the first instance of organized crime on the reservation. And he did so many incredible things. He had a hand in almost every major piece of national legislation impacting Native people. Self-Determination Act, tarot programs, all kinds of things that really enabled tribes to take charge of their own governmental affairs. It was stunning. He went to residential boarding schools. He was brought off to Toma. He then was brought down to Flandreau. He ran away, and by run away, I mean literally ran away. He ran from Flandreau all the way to Red Lake. Teen little teeny bopper. Twice. They never sent him back again afterwards. And he was great friends with Hubert H. Humphrey and Walter Mondale and 
there was a woman named Koya Knutsen. I don't know how many of you might remember. Yeah. Democratic meteor in a Republican place. They kind of redistricted. But it was, I think it was the eighth district that she ran for. And this is before Roger Jordan got into office. He said, I'm going to help you get elected. I like what you have to say. He campaigned for her. He stumped for her. He helped organize for her. And then this was also the time when termination policies came up. I don't know how familiar you are with those. The U.S. government said, it'll be a good idea to just terminate the reservations, say they don't have their own governments anymore. They're just United States citizens, and that should be enough. Horrible disaster. Places like Menominee, when they were terminated, became more impoverished. And the United States government spent more money in welfare dollars than they'd ever spent subsidizing the tribal government. It didn't work. But Jordan was coming into power at that time. And he said, Koya, kill it. Kill it. There's four Dakota communities that are towards the top of that list for termination. I want you to put an end to it. And she kind of hemmed and hawed. She was looking at the next election and thinking, ugh, I don't know. Then she had other problems. Her husband was horribly sexist and said, get home and cook. You know, what kind of woman are you? And she had all kinds of political problems. Never made it back into office, in part because of those other problems, but maybe in part, too, because Roger Jordan pulled the plug and said, I'll campaign for somebody else. People paid attention, though. And termination never came up from anyone from any Minnesota caucus ever since. And that was before he was an elected tribal official. He built Red Lake's housing program. He built their Indian preference policies. So many momentous things. He was a fighter. And he ticked off a lot of people. He was the kind of guy who'd make you feel so safe when he's standing by your side fighting for your rights and extremely uncomfortable when you were in his way. <laughs> in the course of his political trajectory, there were other crazy chapters, some really successful. Like there was actually a gentleman named Robert Cole who was a political figure in northern Minnesota he was a radio announcer on the local radio station, and he was also just hired to represent the newly minted Bemidji Area Chamber of Commerce. He got on the radio and he went on a racist rant. And the full text of what he said is in the book because it is unbelievable. I mean, like, really unbelievable, you know. And uh, yeah, so I'll just let you read that. But ultimately, uh, Jordan said, What? And he started organizing a tribal boycott of Bemidji. So effective. People didn't realize that you know, Indians might have been 25% of the population in Bemidji, but were over half of the shopping population. Shut the place down. Some guys like uh, Joe Lucan said, all right, enough is enough. And he instituted the first affirmative action employment policy in Bemidji in direct response. Cole had his you know, head handed to him on a plate. He had to resign, and he got the change. So he was a great social activist in addition to tribal leader. He ended up having an incredible political battle with his rise. In fact, immediately after he assumed office, the US government pulled all the funding for Red Lake because they wanted somebody else in there. And so he had to get on the horn, which he did, to Walter Mondale and Hubert Humphrey and people like that, and they got the lights turned back on. But he had to fight his whole way through, 32 years in office. Believe it or not, 
because he built all of these health programs and so forth, the life expectancy for people at Red Lake increased almost an entire year for every year he was in office, 32 years in a row. But before he started, there was no ambulance service. Heart attack? You couldn't even call. There was no phone service. You know? He built all those things. And of course he had allies. Of course, there's, there's a huge reservation. Lots of people worked with him. But he provided critical leadership, pretty visionary stuff. And interestingly, he had to drive everywhere and he hated traveling. But he traveled tirelessly. Sometimes he was hilarious. He ended up sitting with Wendell Chino, the tribal chairman from Apache, at, uh, in Philadelphia in 1976, commemorating the you know, anniversary for the United States. And all this was hot, like this. There was no, uh, no air conditioners. You know, speeches are droning on and on. Wendell Chino says, just go up there. Just take the microphone and tell them how it is. Enough of this crap. Don't be chicken. Finally, Jordan, fine. He goes stomping up there. I don't know, you know, like, like senators and everything? Grabs the microphone, and he had like a Gideon Bible or something he pulled from the hotel room. So he holds it up, and there's actually the Constitution had been pulled out and was in a glass case sitting there too, and he says, listen up, you people. You got two constitutions in the United States of America. This one right here, he's holding up the Bible, and that one right there in that glass case. And you know what? You haven't lived up to either one. Wham! He slammed the Bible down on the ground and stomped off. <laughs> Wendell Chino's in the back. Tee -hee -hee. <laughs> and with all of his travels, Roger Jordan, when he came through Walker, like where Walker City Park is, he'd always stop and make whoever's coming with him get out. He says, look. Look, sailboats, landscaping, fancy houses, all white people. That's what Red Lake would look like. That's what Red Lake would look like if we didn't have Moose Dung and he who has spoken to and Peter Graves. And that's what it's going to look like tomorrow if we ever let our guard down. Someone is always coming after our land. Someone is always coming after our lifeways. There's a thousand ways to get at them. And Red Lake will always need warriors. And I think to his dying day, that's exactly who Roger Jordan was. There was another chapter, too, on Anna Gibbs, who is somebody who defies description in so many different ways. She's about four foot ten. One leg's actually longer than the other. She had a birth defect. And her whole life, she had so many experiences with racism and mistreatment and so forth. She remembers the bombings at Red Lake. Red Lake was bombed. Uh, it was a test range. And there's actually, if you saw the most recent issue of the Minnesota Conservation Volunteer, that was the first thing I saw outside of the Warrior Nation book that talked about the bombing up at Red Lake. But they were testing ordinance and stuff like that. And, uh, and it was unbelievable. And she has this telling story where she's sitting in her house in Panema and they had I think 11, 11 or 12 kids and this tiny little table and they're all trying to fit underneath the table except for Anna who's pulling at her mom's skirt looking out the window and here come the airplanes bam bam the ordinance is blowing up and trees are falling down and they're just terrified and believe it or not her family the Greenleaf family had kept horses since way back in the day 
Red Lake, by the way, is the only Ojibwe community in Minnesota where there was a horse culture. It's where the pines meet the prairies and people had acquired horses and they hunted buffalo. The tall grass prairie region is buffalo country. Uh, and they still had these ponies. Anna Gibbs as a kid. And there were even wild pony herds in Panema up through the 1970s. So she sneaks outside, hops on a pony, escapes to the sugar bush. And she's out there, she's having a cry, she's scared. And then she falls asleep and she's dreaming about, there's, we have a legend about how the first sugar bush, people discovered the gift of sugar. And uh, the story is about the Sasquatch. Some guy was running through the woods, starving, tripped, fell, looked up and there was a big, Bigfoot Sasquatch sitting there with a machete or something. And he moved and the guy looked down thinking he was gonna get killed. And instead the Sasquatch sliced his own leg. And when he looked up, he had transformed into a giant maple tree. And there was maple sap pouring out. So that's kind of the legend we call a maple inanatig, like man tree or being named after the Sasquatch. But anyways, she'd fallen asleep, she woke up, and then running through the woods is coming all her siblings and her mom and, you know, on the other pony and her mom's scowling at her. And then uh, she just kind of goes up to her mom and she's kind of sheepish, but she said, hey, the sap's running, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the maple sap is like, that's life. That saved that guy's life and it's, uh, it's a spiritual energy drink. And uh, she says, hey, mom, do you have tobacco for the Bigfoot? You know, puts out her tobacco, takes a drink. So familiar, never sweeter. And uh, she's a great window into how Red Lakers have changed the rest of the world. She was officiating at most of the funerals for people who died in the shooting in 2005, along with Tom Stillday. We usually have two-day wakes, and uh, the second day was usually just open visitation. And she said, no, we need to change something here. We need to celebrate life. And she instituted a, a song protocol for that second night, which is still done every day for all those traditional funerals ever since. And this in many ways was cultural change, but she had enough influence to do that. She's a spiritual leader in a place where most of the spiritual leaders are men. And she was able to affect that change and preserve that cultural continuity. It's really a remarkable story. And by the way, there's, there's the stories of so many other Red Lakers in there. Everything from professional wrestlers to professional hockey players to people changing the law, people who created National Congress of American Indians, so many different things. And when Anna Gibbs is kind of looking at their stories, she said, you know, every time they tried to bury us, they didn't realize we were the seeds. And it's a remarkable story of resilience. That in spite of all the hardships, in spite of all the tough times, Red Lake built a nation. And they remade it over and over through all these different lives of all these amazing people. And today they continue to remake it. There are struggles. Sure, substance abuse, poverty, all those kind of things. But of all the things wrong at Red Lake, every one of them can be fixed by what's right at Red Lake. And there's a lot that's right there. And a lot of people don't know about it, but hopefully they will now. And uh, I know that, that the leadership at Red Lake and the families there are doing everything in their power to continue to remake Red Lake in the best ways possible.
We've reached one of the best parts of the Fireside series, the Q&A with the author and our dedicated audience. It's a chance to go beyond the book, connecting readers and writers on a deeper level. To make it easier for you, the listener, I've summarized the questions and we'll read them. The first question is about the Dawes Act of 1870, which authorized the president to survey tribal lands and divide it into allotments for individual Indians. How did allotment affect Red Lake? You are right. There are only two reservations that have been able to successfully avoid allotment altogether. So it's you know Warm Springs in Oregon and, and uh, Red Lake. And so Red Lake did not get allotted and then put the land back together. They were able to avoid allotment altogether. Uh, and that was something that was part of the legislation around the Nelson Act. It was a last second amendment um, that was put in. Uh, and in large part because of the um, request at Leech Lake. There are other places that have had a contiguous landmass, you know, chunks that were not allotted, um, but those two are pretty unique in that sense. Red Lake also, um, the other things, there are a lot of things unique about it, but um, that's one of the things structurally, nobody owns land on the main reservation. It's all held collectively in federal trust for the benefit of all tribal members. So although families have lived there for ages and ages, you can get access to a plot, but you can't put a loan on it, and you can't own it, and you can't sell it. Uh, so they have a way, you know, for keeping things going. It has made it hard to get loans and do those sort of things. Um, but, you know, Peter Graves is pretty interesting when they were looking at allotment. By the way, that wasn't one bullet they had to dodge. They were trying to allot Red Lake for many decades. And when Red Lake was saying no, he had some really forward-thinking things to say. He said, no, if we do this, it'll be like every other lake in the United States of America. We will plunder and destroy this resource. It'll be full of resorts and cabins and white folk and everything else, and it will be destroyed. It'll be full of septic tanks. And uh, we know, and he's kind of talking about, like in environmental ethics, what we call the tragedy of the commons. Even though he didn't have that terminology for expressing it, um, that's what he was talking about. Today, Red Lake has the cleanest aquifer in the state of Minnesota, and it's directly connected to their choice about how to handle the land. The next question delves even deeper into the history of allotment. The Red Lake Reservation has areas that are not contiguous, and some of these lands were subject to certain allotment provisions. Can Troyer explain the situation? So that's the, that's the second half of this equation. The main reservation avoided allotment, but there were other allotment provisions. So there was a, there was a chief's allotment at Thief River for moose dung, uh, and that, that was received, bequeathed to his son, and then chipped away at, and it's no longer in tribal hands anymore. Um, there were a couple of other allotments up at Warroad. There were three different uh, sections that were allotted in Warroad at the northwest angle, far northern Minnesota, um, because in spite of all of the politics around Red Lake, there was a village of 100 people at Warroad and another one of 50 people up at Roseau, and they'd never sold any land, agreed to anything, and they were still sitting there, supposedly landless. They're homesteading and opening it up to white settlement. And so they said, you have to make a provision. Now, what do you want us to do? They wanted them to move to Red Lake. Some of them did, but 
ultimately they did provide some, those were individual allotments. There's a section in the Anna Gibbs chapter because the land issues around War Road in particular are kind of complicated. Um, and the tribe ultimately um, acquired one of the allotment sections. Uh, and some of the family was really divided about if it should go to the tribe or stay in the family and so forth. But. Finally, Troyer gets a question about Red Lake's evolving relationships with surrounding counties and municipalities. There's a lot to learn. I do feel like our contemporary political environment is one that Red Lake is trying to engage in much more effectively. A huge chunk of Beltrami County is Red Lake. And so there is a Red Laker on the, who's a Beltrami County commissioner right now. He's been elected. Yeah, and, uh, and he's representing native and non-native people both. Um, the tribal council's been sitting down with the Beltrami County you know, government on a regular basis. Um, they have sustained engagement with all kinds of other political entities. Ultimately, that tribal relationship is supposed to be between the native nation and the United States federal government. But you know, I think the tribe's very practical about looking at you know, building their relationships with everyone else. Honestly, the tribe really debated about doing this book. They have been pretty isolationist and kept things to themselves. And it was an intentional choice where, you know, the tribal council said, hey, no one's ever going to support us for any kind of political solution if they never know our story. We need to have relationships and allies uh, outside of our community, even though we can take care of our own business. Uh, and, and this really represents a shift in the political thinking for a lot of people at Red Lake. And that doesn't mean it hasn't been contested either, but that has consistently been what they've been saying. Um, Red Lake's had some really interesting ongoing and highly public stuff with dealing with the pipelines and all kinds of other things, you know, and I think they realize that a network of Alliances is really vital to making that happen. Um, I think we all need to tune into Native history and to the treaties a lot more. You know, honestly, if I moved to a place like Germany, I would expect someone to speak to me in German. I would expect to learn something about the history of Germany, and especially about the history of the little hamlet in Germany where I happen to be spending my time. And I would think it exceptionally rude if I did not. How weird, you know, that there's over 10,000 years of human history in Minnesota since the retreating of the glaciers. And we teach so little about it. We start with the arrival of the first white guy. You know? That's not only wrong and erroneous, but it enables us to be unconscious, disconscious about our combined history. The story of gain and nation building and wealth creation, the good parts of America for white folk, are also stories of loss and land thievery and so forth for native folk. And it's important to acknowledge the loss. And it's important to make sure the next 500 years are different. We live in a diverse country. We got to figure out how to get along. That is not a guarantee. I've seen some studies that say we're in a pre-revolutionary state. You know, if reform methods are not going to provide equitable access to opportunity, 
then we're looking at a revolution. And that's not just talk, you know? I, to me, this is the problem with some of the folks in the political field out there. It's one of the finest acknowledgments that we still have an oppressive political system, although they'd be the most loath to call it by those terms. And what they're afraid of is that we're going to switch roles for who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed. And so they are spending energy to protect the, who is the primary beneficiary of the ongoing oppression. Keep the Muslims out, keep the Mexicans out, you know, keep the poor people from registering to vote, that kind of stuff. And I think we should take all of that energy and just fight oppression. And then the system will work for everybody no matter who they are. And that is a profound challenge. Yeah. Anyways, don't mean to rant too much. But <laughs> yeah. Wish we could spend even more time, but you've been great. Thank you. You've been listening to the second season of the Fireside Podcast, presented by the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Next week, Catherine Madison closes the Fireside series with the reading from The War Came Home With Him, another finalist for the 20th Annual Minnesota Book Awards, which tells the stories of two survivors of one man's war, a father who withstood a prison camp's unspeakable inhumanity, and a daughter who withstood the residual cruelty that came home with him. Until then, we hope you consider supporting the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library and its mission, Stronger Libraries for Stronger Communities. Learn more at thefriends.org. Follow us on Twitter at The Friends and on Facebook at facebook.com slash friends of SPPL. Please consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. Thank you for listening. 